Today's episode is sponsored by Privacy.com, the totally free service that lets you buy anything online without having to give out your real credit card number. Instead, you create virtual credit card numbers, which are linked to your bank account that you can use anywhere you shop. The security benefits of hiding your financial details is great, but there's more. For example, it's great just for signing up for free trials because you can create a virtual card, sign up, and then delete it knowing that you'll never be charged once the trial is over. You can find out more, get 100% free and unlimited access, and a $5 credit just for trying by going to privacy.com best, and you can find that link in the show notes. And now... Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about how the illiberalism of the Israeli government has alienated all but the most far-right, white supremacist, anti-Semitic, ironically fascist, of their allies. And the U.S., of course, it's up to you to decide how we fit into that list. Clips today come from The Ezra Klein Show, The Real News, Democracy Now!, and a portion of a progressive faith sermon from Dr. Roger Ray. There is just a flat reality that if you have a liberal orientation towards foreign policy and your foreign policy is based on some level on a recognition of of human rights and a belief and a rejection of oppression, that where things have gone in Israel is just – it's objectively more offensive. I mean you write about this eloquently and constantly, but – you know, Israel has become a quite brutal police state to the Palestinians. I mean, it is it is not a reasonable way to make people to live. It's like there are many moral atrocities happening all over yes. the world at all times, yes. right? It is not a, a unique one happening there, but it is a real one happening there. And, you know, at some points there's just a much more active peace movement, but there's also kind of been an Israel exception. But the worse it gets, right. just the harder it gets to like carve it out. And then the yeah. more sort of concentrated its support gets in one party, right? I continue to think that Netanyahu made an unbelievable series of, for Israel's future, strategic miscalculations in the way he treated Obama. That it was like, I understand the short-term political incentives of it, right. but it was such a bad idea. He right. alienated so many people he needed to have on his side in the long term in the Democratic Party. Like, it honestly broke my heart a little bit. But – I take those points um, about the political strategy of it and, and how it's lining up, but there is just like – there's just like also a reality of it that, you know, it, it just causes tension. Right, and one of the really interesting things – so one of the most effective things that groups like APAC do is they take members of Congress, but not only members of Congress, all kinds of American influential people to Israel, which is a very powerful experience for a lot of them. And it's understandably, I mean, it's, I love going to Israel, but they don't take them to see Palestinian life. And in my experience, and most American Jewish leaders also don't actually ever really, they may have been to Israel 77 times, but they've also, also not really ever experienced Palestinian life. So it's kind of like the equivalent of like, going to New York City, only spending your time on the Upper East Side, never going to the Bronx, and then basically coming and talking about what you learned about community relations with the police, right? Um, it's not a great analogy, but the point is that they, what they don't see is as important as what they do see. When people actually do go to spend time and, and see life of Palestinians up close, it is generally a transformative Yeah, which experience. I'm sure you've done, many, I've done a bit of also. Yeah. It's, I mean, that's part of where my attitudes on this come from. Like right. it's, you can't look at that and say it's okay. You just can't. Exactly. All of the rationalizations, it's worse in Syria. They brought yeah. it on themselves. Like they have a certain surface plausibility when we're sitting here in New York. When you actually go and you meet decent, normal people who are, who have lived there. I mean, let's just think about it in American terms. 
people in Mississippi in 1953 were at least theoretically citizens of the United States. They couldn't actually actualize that citizenship. They couldn't vote. But they were theoretically citizens. The Palestinians are not, they live under Israeli control. They're not even theoretically citizens of the country under which they live. They never have been, right? So they have the entire state apparatus that dominates their lives is completely unresponsive to them and only responsive to the Jews who live alongside them. So they lose every day in every interaction they have. That is really brutal to see. And I, I think one of the things that I would really hope that people would start to do more is create more of an opportunity for more people to have that experience that you had. The thing that gets said here, where when you bring this up, people are like, well, it's worse in Syria. Right. Like, it is. It yes. is worse in Syria. Like, let me right. just say, like, what right. is happening in Syria right. is like, it's beyond imagining. But you really can't have it both ways. You can't both have the... There should be a special relationship with Israel, and particularly if you're Jewish, that you should have a special connection to Israel and feel a stake in its success and its actions and its future and feel like it represents you and you represent it on some level. And so you should treat it specially. But as soon as you say it's doing wrong, then it has to be in a completely normal, objective, detached, ordinal ranking of countries and human rights abuses and whatever all around the world. Like either there is something unique about Israel and the relationship in this case of American Jews to it, which creates something uniquely offensive about Israel acting in this way towards a minority that it is subjugating. Or you can say there is worse things elsewhere in the world, but then like – if the idea is that you treat Israel sort of very normally on that on that front, then well, why not on other fronts? Why does Israel get more foreign aid? Why does it get more military aid, right? Like you can't have the special relationship only happen in the positive spaces. Right, exactly, right. I mean, most of these other countries that are doing these horrible things worse than Israel, the United States isn't paying for their militaries, you know, is not paying, giving them right. huge amounts of military aid. We are really deeply implicated in those things. And I think a lot of this tends up being kind of whataboutism, you know? And the truth is that, Things don't have to be the worst, you know, human rights abuse in the world to be bad and to be something that one should be concerned about, especially for Jews. Like, imagine if, you know, Jews were protesting Soviet uh, oppression of Jews in the 1970s, right? I didn't hear a lot of people going and saying, this is double standards because what Pol Pot and Idi Amin are doing is worse, right? This mattered to Jews, right? And I feel like what happens in Israel should matter to Jews, partly because I think it's morally horrendous and partly, as you said, absolutely rightly, from a long-term perspective, it is an existential threat to the survival of the state of Israel. And it's amazing how many former Israeli, you know, military and security heads say that all the time, you know? it's They often sound more left-wing than J Street. Yeah, there's always been that strange dimension to it yeah. where – the common line 10 years ago was yeah. that the range of opinions yeah. that you're allowed to have in Israel yeah. is broader than the ones yeah. that um, you're allowed to have before getting called bad names in America. Right. Um, it, it does seem to me to have collapsed a little bit within the Israeli political system, mm. but but certainly not all the way. Yeah, yeah. But I think one of the things, you know, it's not for me to tell anyone else what to write about because there are so many different subjects that really matter and we all have our things to speak. But I think that one of the, I would say, the costs of of extremely successful, extremely talented, not to flatter you, but, you know, people like yourself or, you know, or Matt Iglesias or others of not writing about this. I it, never thought I'd see the day when Peter Beinart was demanding that <laughs> me and Matt know, get back into the Israel conversation. Well, I know, Marty Parrott would be, you know, I never forgive me. For this. Yeah, no, Marty Parrott would not be pleased. <laughs> but I think there are a couple things. First of all, as you know, a great many non-Jews simply are too afraid to write about it, right? 
they're just not going to do that because they know that as much of a pain in the neck as it might be for you to be called anti- self-hating Jew, they're going to be called anti-Semitic. So I'm always struck, I don't know if you are, by the level of virtual terror often that many non-Jews have about this issue, right? So you have a form of protection that they don't have. Secondly, when you show that you can do it and survive, yeah, you, people say some mean things to you, but you survive, you do fine. A lot of this is fear-based. I mean, a lot of this, I think what, what maintains the American political discussion about Israel is the fear that people have. And when people walk through it and come out the other side and survive, that starts to fizzle. Robert Bauer, this is the Nazi who carried out this massacre in Pittsburgh. Uh, On social media, he regularly talked about immigration, um, how it was supposedly destroying the U.S. Specifically, he echoed this popular alt-right claim of of so-called white genocide. Uh, No white people are actually being killed. What they're saying is that the percentage, the overall percentage of white people in the U.S. is declining. And of course, they blame immigration for that. But what's interesting about this is that they don't these far-right types don't address the root causes of immigration. And again, as you mentioned, we are seeing a kind of scapegoating. So this shooter blames Jewish Americans, claiming this is a a plot to decrease the percentage of the white population through immigration. But actually, what he's not acknowledging is that U.S. destabilization of Central and Latin America has really pushed a lot of this immigration. The the, the most recent migrant caravan we've seen has been coming largely from Honduras, where in 2009, the U.S. backed a military coup against a left-wing president and installed a right-wing military junta that still stole the election most recently and killed protesters that is still repressing the population. There's no discussion of the wars in Central America that, you know, the U.S. backed Contras and death squads or the relations between the Mexican state and drug cartels that are pushing a lot of violence. Uh, These systemic issues are not dealt with. The role of our government and and governments in Latin America in fueling this immigration is not discussed. And instead, there are convenient scapegoats and and Jews are blamed or or Democrats are blamed. Can you can you respond to that scapegoating as well? Yeah, well, I mean, you've made the point about Latin America, which, which I agree with. But I want to say something as as a North American Jew to North American Jews. Uh, you cannot live off the bounty of such super exploitation and not think that this is going to come back to haunt you. You know, this is a fundamentally a white Christian society in terms of its culture, its power structure. Non-Christians are still more or less outsiders here, including Jews, Muslims, and other uh, other non-Christians. And and Jews particularly, let's acknowledge the fact that there are several thousand years of hatred of Jews baked into this Western culture. This is a real thing, this deep anti-Semitism, and it's a real thing. That when the far right emerges, and yes, this kind of 
mainstream far right, if you want, the, the current leadership of the Republican Party and, and, and Trumpism. Yes, they ally with this far right, this far fascist right. Well, what happened in Pittsburgh, Jews need to be aware, and so do other non-Christians and non-white Christians be aware. But Jews have a special role in all of this, is that Jews can be the target again. This baked-in anti-Semitism is real, but the defense of it is the fight against the inequality, against I mean, how did Hitler and Nazism arise in Germany? It wasn't because there was good times economically. It was because there was a deep depression. And Jews are a good scapegoat. Jews are a good easy way, you know, to blame. Um, and, and, and yes, there's a tradition in amongst some Jews, less, you know, to some extent less than used to be, I think, of promoting what, what in this society are called more liberal values, like being more sympathetic to immigration and, and, and things like that. I'm not so sure that isn't true amongst many other peoples as well. But yeah, amongst... Well, it's true in general among minority groups, ethnic and religious minority groups, because of course they are the victims of bigotry and prejudice. It makes sense that people would be supportive of you know, these more liberal social policies. Yeah, It's not unique to just Jews. It's true for Latino Americans and black Americans and others. Yeah, no doubt. The, the, and maybe even more so these days amongst Latino and African Americans, uh, because there, there, certainly a large section of the Jewish population has done quite well over the last few decades. Um, but, but as I say, it's, it's, this anti-Semitism is very baked into the, into the culture. You know, it's only a few years ago that overt anti-Semitism was as overt as racism against African Americans. Uh, we're in Baltimore, and there used to be signs outside some of the uh, suburbs here. Uh, it, it was no niggers, no Jews, no dogs. Uh, there used to be section of the newspaper, the Baltimore Sun, as recently as 1969, with a section for whites, a section for Jews. I'm talking about classified real estate ads. Uh, a section for ads for whites, a section of ads for Jews, and no section for, for blacks. Uh, Jews, Jews that think that they can cash in and merge with and be part of the elites and the exploitation that takes place. Jews that think that to, that, that to support uh, the Israeli occupation of Palestinian lands and, and the crimes that have been committed by the Israeli state against Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza, to, to, to welcome Netanyahu when he comes to the United States, remember at Congress how they stood up for him, if Jews, you know, join the exploiters, it will come back to haunt you, haunt us. Because we're not, you know, Jews will never really be, as same way African Americans, same way Latinos, they will never really be in the club. But it's an easy target to point at Jews. So, so th- this issue of, of, of fighting anti-Semitism cannot be disconnected from fighting this whole system of, of exploitation, this uh, system that has the United States as the hegemon of the world, if, if, if people don't see the way to fight this growing fascism is real democracy, both economic and political, a broad front of all the people, 
And we can't just get upset, you know, as Jews, uh, when it's Jews that get killed, because this, this type of violence is, is, is affecting, you know, all peoples. This comes as Israeli lawmakers drew condemnation Thursday for passing a law that defines Israel as the nation-state of the Jewish people and gives them the sole right to self-determination. The law declares Hebrew the country's only official language and encourages the building of Jewish-only settlements and occupied territory as a national value. This is Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. This is a defining moment in the annals of Zionism and the history of the state of Israel. The controversial bill passed on a vote of 62 to 55 over the objection of Arab-Israeli lawmakers who threw papers in the air in protest after its passage. For more, we're joined by Democracy Now! video stream by Yusuf Munayir, the executive director of the U.S. Campaign for Palestinian Rights, and joining us in studio, Rebecca Vilcomerson, executive director of Jewish Voice for Peace, co-authored a new op-ed in The Independent, headlined, As Jews we reject the myth that it's anti-Semitic to call Israel racist. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Um, Yusuf, let's begin with you. Um, if you can talk about what's happened uh, in uh, Gaza right now, the death toll up to 140, and then move on to the law that was just passed um, on Thursday. Sure. Well, the most recent events that we've seen uh, in uh, the, the Gaza Strip are sort of a escalation that happens from time to time and forces, uh, you know, many in the media and us here in the United States and the outside world to tune back in uh, to uh, Gaza based on the fear that it is on the brink of uh, yet another major uh, Israeli bombardment. But the reality is that in those moments when we are not tuned in, uh, the constant and structural violence that Palestinians in Gaza face uh, because of the occupation, because of the policies of Israeli siege, and because of the violent methods of enforcement that the Israeli military uses to support those policies uh, continues all the time. And this is uh, altogether part of a broader agenda by uh, the state of Israel uh, to quell any sort of resistance uh, to uh, what it seeks to, to do throughout the entirety of the territory, which is to impose its will on the native population of Palestinians, both in the West Bank and Gaza and occupied territories, but also on Palestinian citizens of Israel, uh, under the premise that uh, it is the Jewish population that is in control, that deserves to be in control, and that uh, any rights at all that uh, may be afforded to uh, you know, uh, non-Jews are really done uh, as a favor uh, and not something that the, the Jewish state has to do uh, because of principles of equality or tolerance or democracy or anything like that. And the most recent uh, step that the Israeli Knesset has taken through the passage of uh, this law, I think, is, is the best uh, proof of that, showing very clearly that the Israelis no longer care about, uh, you know, uh, even pretending to balance this notion of being a Jewish state and a democracy. You know, I think that was never the case. Now it's clear that they're not even interested in pretending anymore. And in fact, the, uh, you know, the initiator and sponsor of this legislation said after its passage, 
we are passing this bill to make sure that no one has any doubt or even any thoughts about Israel being a state of all its citizens. So it's very clearly aimed at enshrining inequality, enshrining apartheid in a constitutional way within Israeli law. Rebecca Vilcomerson, if you can respond to this, what's being called the nation-state law that's been passed. Yeah, I mean, I think what you have said is exactly right. I think I found it shocking but not surprising, because I think any time you have a set of, again, foundational law, this is a basic law, so it's sort of the equivalent of a constitutional um, bill that will then have an impact on any future laws. And it basically obligates the state to treat its non-Jewish citizens unequally. And that's 20 percent of the overall Israeli population. So by Israel enshrining racism and discrimination and apartheid into its basic law, that's pretty shocking. At the same time, not that surprising because of the ongoing policies that Israel has been pursuing for so many decades. And the response of the Jewish community? Well, here in the United States, I think it's been interesting because there's much more unanimity than there usually is against this bill. Um, you know, everyone from J Street to the American Jewish Committee to the Reform and Conservative Movements, which together represent half of American Jewry, even some right-wing organizations like the ADL have had some limited concerns about the bill. And I think it's a reflection of, um, you know, Peter Beinart sort of had this seminal essay that he wrote in 2010, which talked about the ways that the Israeli, the Jewish Israeli population was moving to the right and the American Jewish population is staying sort of liberal and progressive and there's a split that that's happening. And I think we're seeing the fruition of that. And people are just horrified by this sort of extreme right-wing agenda that I think the Netanyahu government is feeling empowered by the Trump administration to enact fully. Uh, you wrote a piece in The uh, in the Independent um, signed by—well, uh, about how 40 Jewish groups from 15 different countries have signed this joint statement condemning yeah. attempts to stifle criticism with false yeah. uh, accusations, you say, of anti-Semitism. Right. This was a pretty historic uh, moment. We Again, we had 40 organizations from around the world, Jewish and Israeli organizations. Um, and the we felt like it was very important because there's so many efforts right now worldwide, lots of different specific strategies and tactics, but worldwide trying to legislate definitions of anti-Semitism that sometimes include chilling language at the very minimum and sometimes actually legislate that forms of anti-Zionism or certain critiques of Israel would be defined as anti-Semitic. And this has resulted in bank accounts being shut down in Germany and in the UK, people being prosecuted in France. Here in the United States, there's something called the Anti-Semitism Awareness Act, which would make it potentially, um, you know, extremely difficult for people to speak out politically against Israeli human rights violations. So we felt it was very important to lend a Jewish voice against that and to say that BDS is a legitimate tactic to be using in this particular moment. Today's episode is sponsored by Madison Reed. Since 2013, hundreds of thousands of women have tried and loved Madison Reed for the way they've revolutionized at-home hair color. Amy Everett founded the company, naming it after her daughter, because the status quo of hair color options either left much to be desired or cost way too much. Madison Reed offers the quality of a salon, the convenience and affordability of at-home hair color, and an ammonia-free formula with ingredients you can feel good about. With beautiful multi-dimensional hair color, you'll look like you just came from the salon, but you'll have saved a whole lot of time and money because Madison Reed color kits are delivered to your door on your schedule for under 25 bucks. To get started, find your perfect shade at madisonreed.com, and they have a special offer for you as a Best of Luck listener. Right now, you can get 10% off plus free shipping on your first color kit when you use the promo code LEFT. That's madisonreed.com, and use the promo code LEFT. 
This is going on while Western governments, uh, including Israel, particularly Israel, are encouraging and supporting the growth of Nazism uh, across uh, the, the Western world. So a good example of that is Israel arming the uh, Nazi Azov battalion in Ukraine. Uh, Israeli Tavor rifles uh, are in their hands, uh, licensed by Israel. Of course, the Azov battalion is now part of the uh, U- official Ukrainian armed forces, but it is the most fearsome and organized Nazi armed group in the world right now. And what uh, we also uh, revealed at the Electronic Intifada a couple of months ago is that the Canadian government, the government of uh, of Justin Trudeau, the supposedly progressive, liberal, uh, diversity-loving government of Trudeau, was actually in contact with the Azov Battalion. And its military attache in Ukraine was meeting with the, the, uh, the Azov Battalion and was photographed with members of this Nazi militia. So while uh, Trudeau is attacking the boycott, divestment and sanctions movement, the non-violent uh, movement for Palestinian justice, freedom and equality, his government, along with the government of Israel, the United States and the European Union, is actually encouraging and fostering Nazism in Ukraine and other countries. Yeah, and an important point you mentioned, local Jewish leaders in Pittsburgh actually told U.S. President Donald Trump that he is not welcome in their community until he denounces the kinds of white supremacists uh, who was one of the people who carried out the attack. The the Nazi who attacked the synagogue was himself an avowed white supremacist. He was active on alt-right forums on the internet. Um, and this is actually an important point in terms of looking at the rhetoric of Trudeau and Trump. After Last year, when a Nazi uh, attacked, drove a car into a crowd of anti-racist protesters in Charlottesville, killing a young woman, Donald Trump claimed that there was blame on both sides, thereby legitimizing white supremacists and the racist violence by implying how they're equivalent to anti-racist protesters. Well, after the Pittsburgh massacre, when this Nazi terrorist killed 11 Jewish Americans, the Israeli ambassador, Ron Dermer, reiterated Trump's statement and and essentially repeated it, claiming that, that the responsibility is on both sides, drawing a false equivalence between anti-racists on the left, specifically singling out the British leftist Jeremy Corbyn, the leader of the Labour Party, and implying that there's a false equivalence between them and the kinds of Nazi terrorists who attacked the Tree of Life synagogue. Well, ironically, Trudeau, as you mentioned, who portrays himself as this liberal progressive figure, would you say that Trudeau, by trying to conflate Holocaust revisionism and denial with criticism of Israel and with BDS and the Pittsburgh massacre, do you not think that he is also, like Ron Dermer, the Israeli ambassador, and like Donald Trump, isn't he also using this kind of both sides rhetoric to try to equate, equate Palestinian human rights activists and, and bla- basically claim that they're equivalent somehow to Nazis. It's, it's utterly despicable. I mean, the Palestinian solidarity movement and Palestinians have always been loud in their opposition to right-wing racism, to anti-Semitism. The BDS movement has been very clear in official statements and in, in statements by many activists and intellectuals and scholars and writers, that this is an anti-racist movement. 
that it stands in solidarity with Jewish people against anti-Semites. But whereas Palestinians and their supporters often find ourselves standing with our uh, Jewish comrades against racism, we see time and again Israel and its supporters lining up with the racists and inciting against uh, against uh, uh, left-wing Jewish activists. And, and we saw that as well, that... Uh, the right-wing Israeli media was attacking left-wing Jewish activists and claiming that they brought this attack on themselves by supporting uh, bringing refugees and immigrants into the United States. In other words, using pretty much the same anti-Semitic rhetoric as the, the, the killer, the synagogue killer, who had been blaming uh, Jewish um, uh, groups for, uh, you know, supporting refugee resettlement in the United States. Again, the big picture here is that Israel, as a, as a right-wing, ultra-nationalist, settler-colonial project, its interests lie in demonizing people who support equal rights. And that's why Israel finds allies today amongst the worst of the worst. Hungary's uh, pro-Nazi uh, Hitler apologist Prime Minister Viktor Orban, uh, Poland's right-wing ultranationalist government that uh, has pushed through this law to, uh, uh, you know, basically enforce Holocaust revisionism with uh, right-wing neo-fascists all over Eastern Europe and the United States and white supremacists in the U.S. It's no wonder that Nazis like Richard Spencer in the United States strongly identify with Israel uh, and, and Spencer even calls him, himself a white Zionist because they see Israel as an ultra-nationalist purification project as the model for what they want to do in the United States. And now the service Israel is providing to racists, anti-Semites, and white supremacists across the Western world is that is, is kind of a laundry service where if, if they are pro-Israel, if they say they support Israel, Israel will defend them against charges of anti-Semitism. And that's exactly the role we saw Ron Derma, the Israeli ambassador, playing with Trump. When the Jewish community in the United States was rightly pointing at Trump's incitement and encouragement of white nationalism and anti-Semitism, the Israeli ambassador was touring the TV studios to say it's wrong to criticize and attack Trump. That's the role Israel plays. Israel today is one of the biggest defenders of anti-Semitism in the world. Let me ask you about Israel right now. Israel's passage of the new law that defines Israel as the nation state of the Jewish people and gives them the sole right to self-determination. The law also declares Hebrew the country's only official language and encourages the building of Jewish-only settlements in the occupied territory as a national value. This is Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. This is a defining moment in the annals of Zionism and the history of the state of Israel. We will keep ensuring civil rights in Israel's democracy. These rights will not be harmed, but the majority also has rights, and the majority decides. 
An absolute majority wants to ensure our state's Jewish character for generations to come. Can you talk about this new law, Noam Chomsky? Yeah, first of all, a slight correction. The uh, All Jewish settlements that are authorized are within Israel proper. It's not even a question in the occupied territories. They're all like that. But this is within Israel proper. Uh, so, yes, the new law does change the existing situation, but not by as much as being as is being claimed. Uh, what the new law describes has pretty much been in place for a long time. Uh, basic law back in land laws back in 1960 established uh, what the Israeli High Court uh, called uh, uh, concluded is uh, uh, their statement was Israel is the sovereign state of the Jewish people, all Jewish people, but not its citizens, just the Jews. That was 60 years ago. Uh, the land laws were set up in such a way that, as was recognized at the time, in fact, that internally in Israel, not outside, that uh, the uh, state, land, uh, state lands would be effectively under the administration of the Jewish National Fund, uh, an array of uh, legal and administrative practices was set up to uh, ensure that I in details. I wrote about them in detail uh, 30 years ago in a book called Towards a New Cold War, sort of went through the documents. But basically, an, a, a complex array was set up to ensure that the Jewish National Fund would uh, be in control of state lands. That amounts to over 90 percent of the country's lands. Uh, what, what's the mission of the Jewish National Fund? Well, it has a contract with the state of Israel, which uh, determines that its mission is to work for the benefit, I'm quoting now, of people of Jewish race, religion, or origin. Okay, what do you expect to follow from this? Uh, what you expect to follow is that uh, 92, 93% of the land of the country is effectively reserved for people of uh, Jewish race, religion, and origin. And that's the way it played out. Uh, this finally came to the court, the Israeli courts, high court, in um, to the year 2000. Civil Liberties Association in Israel brought a case. Now, the plaintiffs were an Arab couple, professional Arab couple, who wanted to uh, uh, buy a home in a Jewish settlement, settlement of Katsir, which was, like most of the country, restricted to Jews. Now, the court finally ruled in their favor in a very narrow decision. Almost immediately, efforts began to try to figure out a way around it by various devices, and the new law simply authorizes it straight. It authorizes all Jewish settlements in Israel proper, which means about 90% of the country. The uh, if you look at the development of settlements over the years, uh, as discussed in an important article by Israeli writer Yitzhak Laor in a recent issue of Haaretz, I just wrote about it in the post here on Truthout. Uh, he points out that uh, I think about 700 
all Jewish settlements were set up. Uh, no uh, Arab settlements, Arab Palestinians are restricted to about 2% of the land, a lot of them being kicked out of that. Uh, so all of this, it formalizes what has been uh, practiced in uh, complex ways. Uh, the uh, uh, it, it does demote uh, Arabic from being an official language to uh, not having that status. Uh, it uh, uh, it, uh, pl- it it enhances the past practices by introducing them into the what's called the basic law, which is effectively the constitution. So yes, these are changes, but uh, less dramatic than uh, the way it's portrayed. Uh, not because these are uh, proper moves, but because it's always been like that in one way or another. Incidentally, this should not be too uh, strange to Americans. You look at the uh, housing pro- This has recently been discussed by Robert Rothstein, an interesting book. If you look at the New Deal housing programs, uh, they were legally and explicitly directed to ensuring white-only projects, white-only towns. And that's why the town, the towns that sprang up in the 1950s, like Levittown, were 100% white. Various legal requirements were introduced to uh, ensure that. Uh, this is the New Deal. We're not talking about the Deep South, although, of course, they influenced it. Uh, the... Uh, uh, this didn't change until the late 60s. And by then, it was too late to benefit African Americans. The reason was because of general economic changes. In the 50, 50s and the 60s were a great growth period in the United States, offered the first time in hundreds of years of history, 400 years of history for uh, African Americans have some sort of a chance of entering the mainstream society, but they were blocked from housing by legal means. By the time the legal means were dismantled, uh, we were moving into the onset of the neoliberal period of stagnation and decline. Uh, so it didn't do them any good. as another chapter in the ugly history of American racism. Uh, so... We shouldn't be all too startled to see what's going on in Israel, which is quite ugly and is part of the shift of the country far to the right, which was predicted in 1967, predicted right off that a consequence of the uh, occupation would be to turn uh, the country to the right. When you have your jackboot on someone's neck, uh, it's not good for your psyche. Uh, and uh, I think we've been watching this happen. Israel's quite aware of it, incidentally. Israeli uh, political analysts have been pointing out for a couple of years that Israel should be preparing itself for a period in which it loses the support of sectors of the world that have some uh, concern for uh, human rights and international law, and should be returning towards alliances with uh, countries that just don't care about this, uh, say, India, uh, under the recent uh, ultranationalist uh, Modi government, uh, 
shares with Israel the move towards ultranationalism, repression, uh, hatred of Islam, uh, China doesn't pay attention to these things, uh, Singapore, uh, Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, and uh, we can see it happening in the United States as well. So uh, not too long ago, uh, Israel was the absolute darling of uh, progressive uh, liberal uh, 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 America. It, uh, that's changed. And by now, among self-identified Democrats, uh, they have considerably more uh, uh, support for Palestinians than for Israel. The support for Israel in the United States has shifted to the ultranationalist right and uh, evangelicals who, uh, for their own reasons, uh, support Israeli uh, actions with some passion, in fact, while at the same time, many of them uh, hold to doctrines uh, which uh, uh, claim that uh, the second coming of Christ, which is imminent, will lead to a series of events which will end up with the Jews being sent to eternal perdition. That combines with uh, support for Israeli actions. And that's, the, that's why the base of Israeli support in the United States has shifted uh, to the right wing of the Republican Party. If you would love a way to financially support this show without it costing you anything, there's good news. You can support the show by bookmarking and using my affiliate link every time you shop with that company online. Y you know, basically the one company online. Lots of evil tendencies. Owned by the richest dude in the world. That one. Chances are you shop there at least now and then, maybe even a lot. Perhaps you make a lot of business-related purchases, I know some of you do. Or maybe you have a standard selection of home goods you get delivered regularly. In any case, you might have some mixed feelings about it, and you'd be right to. But if you do end up using the site, at least you can help siphon off some of that corporate blood money to help support the production of this show. Your shopping experience will be identical to usual, and it won't cost you a dime more. You can get the affiliate link from the show notes on the device you're using to listen right now, or you can find it on the sidebar of the homepage at bestofleft.com. You can bookmark the link so you can set it and forget it while continuing to support us into the future. It helps more than you think, I promise it does, and the more who join in, the more it helps. So thanks for taking the time. On one of his first trips in April, Pompeo visited Saudi Arabia. While meeting with Saudi regime officials in the capital Riyadh, Pompeo called Iran, quote, the greatest sponsor of terrorism in the world. Pompeo then visited Israel, where he praised the extreme right-wing government as it is massacring unarmed protesters in the illegally besieged Gaza Strip. The U.S. Secretary of State refused to criticize the Israeli military for intentionally shooting children and journalists in Gaza. Pompeo's trip to Saudi Arabia and Israel also came at a time when an Israeli journalist leaked comments Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman made during his recent trip to the United States. In a meeting with pro-Israel leaders, the Saudi Crown Prince condemned the Palestinians for not acquiescing to deals offered by the U.S. government. Mohammed bin Salman said, quote, it is about time the Palestinians take the proposals and agree to come to the negotiation table or shut up and stop complaining. That is the crown prince telling the Palestinians to shut up or stop complaining. Joining us to discuss the political dynamics between the U.S. 
Saudi Arabia and Israel-Palestine is Assad Abu Khalil. Assad is a leading expert on Middle East politics and a professor of political science at California State University Stanislaus. He also regularly writes at his website, The Angry Arab News Service. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Ben. So can you re respond? There are a few things we can address here. But first of all, let's just begin. Um, one of Pompeo's first trips was to Saudi Arabia, um, in which he and Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman uh, agreed to increase you know, this aggressive action against Iran. Can you respond? Well, I think that it's fair to say that the destination of foreign trips by the president and now by the new secretaries of state uh, indicate the priorities of the foreign policy agenda of the administration. Saudi Arabia and Israel basically now dictate U.S. foreign policy in the region and even beyond on the question of terrorism. They get to decide who is terrorist and who is not. Uh, the U.S. government is basically engaged in a trade-off with the Saudi government. The Saudis, on the one hand, buy a lot of the weapons from the United States, weapons they don't even know, uh, they don't need, uh, they don't have the skills to be utilized yet, and so on. And they also invest heavily in the United States, and they pay for America's wars in Syria and elsewhere. In return, the United States, I mean, this is a very blatant trade-off that Trump is all too willing to uh, explain to the American public, even on Twitter. In return, uh, they will get, uh, you know, their wars defended, the regime protected, and also their foreign policy priorities respected by the U.S. government. Uh, the Israelis, however, have become the closest allies of Saudi Arabia. Uh, this twin alliance of Israel and Saudi Arabia is very much uh, responsible for much of the bloodshed going on in the Middle East region. And they are also setting the tone of what is left of the so-called peace process, which is basically going to be imposed by force on the Palestinian population. And the remarks that were leaked by the crown prince during his visit here is only an indication that uh, he wants to force the Palestinians not only to accept conditions that do not meet the minimum standards of the Palestinians, even the West Bank and Gaza, and even the Palestinian Authority, this collaborationist regime that the U.S. and Israel set up in Ramallah, but also they have to accept to relocate, to define Jerusalem in a way whereby a suburb outside of Jerusalem will be renamed as if it is Jerusalem. I mean, this is like uh, magical tricks that are being done as if to deceive the Palestinian people that they will have Jerusalem when they don't have it, when they don't have it. Yeah, and let's talk more about Mohammed bin Salman. He, uh, he recently took a trip to the United States for two weeks in which he met with not just Trump, but also many other prominent politicians. He met with Bill Clinton, also a lot of business leaders. And I reported here at The Real News on a summit called the Saudi-U.S. CEO Forum, in which they signed billions of dollars of deals between American and Saudi companies. Um, however, this is, none of this is necessarily surprising. What was interesting and is, uh, as you mentioned, uh, a new hallmark um, of this kind of open collaboration we've seen between Saudi Arabia and Israel, which has gone on for years, but under Mohammed bin Salman has become very explicit. We saw that when he was here in the U.S., Mohammed bin Salman gave a speech to uh, a meeting with, with several pro-Israel leaders from a lot of pro-Israel groups here in the U.S., um, and and that, that's the meeting in which he made these comments, which were leaked by Barack Ravid, the Israeli journalist. Um, Barack Ravid reported that some people in the audience literally fell out of their chairs um, because they were so surprised how openly pro-Israel Mohammed bin Salman is. Uh, can you talk about the crown prince and his policy toward the well, Palestinians? I think that uh, there are no limits to how far the Saudi regime, current Saudi regime, is going to go 
in order to uh, enforce the Israeli agenda on the Palestinian Arab population. The only thing is, I mean, you cannot force something on uh, the aspiration of a population like the Palestinian people who have been fighting for over a century for their rights and statehood and right to return. Uh, but what is also interesting, and this is totally missing from the Western media, because the Western media is uh, entirely enamored with the crown prince, and they often regurgitate uh, propaganda from the Saudi media on Syria, on Yemen, and elsewhere on the region into Western media. Often they translate some of their conspiracy theories and so on. But what I also need to emphasize is that if you look closely at Saudi regime media, as I do, you will find that there are two currents simultaneously going on. On the one hand, there's a clear attempt to uh, diminish, reduce the passion for Palestinians among the Saudi population. Not that this is successful because the Saudi people are really extremely passionate about their identification with the Palestinian cause. But they also are simultaneously continuing to propagate anti-Semitic conspiracy theories in their media. Just today I was reading an article in a Riyadh newspaper, which is a grotesque anti-Semitic uh, explanation of the world economy basically being traced to one Jewish family and so on. Yeah, and we'll have to wrap up in a moment here, but I wonder if you can brief com briefly comment. Um, we've seen this even in the U.S. media, where uh, Mohammed bin Salman and other Saudi officials will spread openly anti-Semitic comments, uh, some of which have also been echoed by Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu, um, who recently, two years ago, blamed the Holocaust on the Palestinian Mufti, not on Hitler. Um, but we've seen that recently, for instance, Mohammed bin Salman did an interview with the Atlantic editor, Jeffrey Goldberg, who himself previously served in the IDF. And in this interview, Mohammed bin Salman claimed that the Ayatollah in Iran made Hitler look like a good guy. Um, so we've seen that we see consistently that the Saudi crown prince whitewashes the Holocaust and, and make, says that his enemies make Hitler look like he was a good guy. Can you respond to that? Yes, I mean, that's worth exploring because I've been arguing for many years that Israel's best friends in the Arab world have always been, throughout the conflict, rabid anti-Semites and Nazis, from Anwar Sadat, who was an unrepentant Nazi anti-Semite, to Mahmoud Abbas, who was a Holocaust denier, the best friends, or to the Falange in Lebanon, uh, the best friends of Israel have always been anti-Semites. So this is not a, 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 an accident at all. If anything, you can argue, it is in the minds of these anti-Semites that they have this conception, this kooky conception based on the protocols of the Elder of Zion and other trash of anti-Semitic literature. And they understand the world through these conspiracies. And they think if we can make peace with the state of Israel who control the world, then we can uh, enhance our situation in our region or in the world. Uh, so this is not surprising at all. And you see reflections of that in the Saudi media. So I told them what I, what I truly believe in my heart, that the Holocaust was one of the worst crimes of modern history. It is right up there with a short list of three or four absolutely horrible events in human history. But it was a European sin. And it was a European sin that was resolved by stealing Middle Eastern land land that had been predominant Muslim territory almost from the time of Muhammad. A European sin should have been resolved 
with European real estate. And the reason that we took Middle Eastern land was because British and American Sunday school classes had talked forever about the Holy Land and the Promised Land as related only to the Jews. That means you haven't read the Quran very deeply. In the Quran, if a territory has been ruled by a Muslim government, it must always be ruled by a Muslim government. So one religious claim said this is Jewish territory. Another religious claim said this is Muslim territory. But in my Sunday school classes, we never talked about what the Quran said. And in the 1940s, fundamentalist Christians simply were unaware of history, of religion, of cultures, and evidently of ethics, because they just took their land. I mean, the Israeli armies went into villages, told all the men they had to come to a meeting at a certain place, and while the men were in the meeting, the other soldiers went to the homes and told the women and children that they could take whatever they could pack and carry away in an hour. And after that hour, they were never allowed back in their own homes again, as uh, fleeing European Jews were put in those houses. Now, if you sell your house, if you make that decision, I'm going to sell my house, you you sign on a contract, you agree to take a certain amount of money, you got nothing to complain about. You decided you sold your house, it's not your house anymore. But if soldiers show up at your house and force you to leave your home, perhaps a home where you and your ancestors have lived and farmed for longer than anyone can remember, they don't even offer to buy it from you, they just take it from you. How long would it take you to get okay with that? I mean, seriously, would you get over it in a few years, maybe a decade or two? Countries have been invading and occupying countries throughout history. I mean, even traveling in England, British people are always happy to tell you about a pre-Norman church or structure or something. And that was a thousand years ago. And they're still... A, a little miffed about William the Conqueror. It's it's uh, not hard to find someone who will reference him as William the something else. White people have been pushing Native Americans off of their land in North America for centuries. But you may be aware that there is still no small amount of dissent about that. There, there are a number of Native Americans that 200 years later are not satisfied with the deal that they got. How long, then, should it take the dispossessed of Palestine to accept the theft of their homeland? It's been 70 years now, but it still seems to be quite wrong. And a part of why it is wrong is because it's still going on. Let me share this uh, historically sequenced map with you. On the far left, you see Israel as it was established uh, through the British Protectorate in 1946, Tiny, tiny pieces of land for the fleeing Jews from Europe. But after uh, wars and attacks, Jerusalem or uh, uh, Israel kept taking territory from those that attacked them and keeping it. So you see the, the yellow uh, area on the far left was where Israel started, and on the far right is where it is now, and Palestinians are being forced into encampments in those small green areas that are either fenced or walled off. And the one on the the left side is the Gaza Strip, which is now one of the most densely populated places on earth. It has become an open-air prison where people are just shoved into that space. Now, this was done 
out of a fundamentalist Christian Sunday school belief that it ought to be done. Backed by Great Britain and the United States, when Arab nations tried to reclaim occupied land, they were beaten back, and Israel just kept getting bigger. I don't want to make light of this, but there's an old joke that says, Israel wants peace. Israel wants a piece of Jordan, and a piece of Syria, and a piece of Lebanon, and a piece of Egypt. Now, I actually have a certain sympathy with the the state of Israel. I believe that given centuries of oppression, exile, and genocide, that the Jews did deserve to have a homeland, a self-governed homeland where they could be safe. Israel has a right to exist. I just don't think they have a right to exist where they are. I just don't think that's their land. And saying that is what makes me nervous about talking about it among strangers. I mean, I really don't like to get this question in a room full of people that I don't know. Anyone who even slightly implies that this particular piece of real estate does not belong to the Jewish state is immediately portrayed by Israelis as being anti-Semitic or worse. Even the Quaker church has been accused of supporting terrorists because they have been critical of the Israeli oppression of Palestinians. And it's true that regardless of how wrong-headed the original land theft was, it has ended up putting Jews in a place that's very difficult to defend, a place where they are surrounded by hostile neighbors who do not want them there, and they're given nowhere else to go. I can understand that they have a need to secure their home and their cities. There have been offenses on both sides, and Palestinian opposition groups know how to grab sympathy through the media. This is just what Martin Luther King Jr. did. This is what Gandhi did. They recognize that if they can be shown being brutally treated by their oppressors in the media, if you can get in the media and be seen to being uh, mistreated, you can gain public support and win the public opinion battle. But that being said, their reasons for the protest are not simply rooted in trying to win a public opinion war. Gaza, as I said, has literally become an open-air prison. With each regional war, Israel has expanded its territory, but in much more subtle ways, they have engaged in land grabs through expanding settlements into Palestinian territory. Those who remain in Palestinian enclaves are having their living conditions constantly eroded through Israeli government actions. The government cuts off access to clean water so that 95% of the people living in this super crowded Gaza Strip do not have access to safe drinking water. Can you imagine giving your babies dirty water? They cut off electrical power except for four hours a day. Can you imagine trying to keep your food and things safe in a tropical environment with only four hours of electricity a day? They keep unemployment at nearly 50%, and the jobs that are available to them require the ability to cross into Israel to basically shine the boots of Israeli soldiers. They're low-paying jobs, 
And, and if they've got any kind of infraction against you, you are restricted from travel across those, those, uh, border points so that people are literally trapped in a densely populated open air prison that they are not allowed to leave and where they cannot find work. Resulting in this final and unimaginable statistic that 50% of children express no will to live. Now, you think about the elementary school age kids that you know or have known. Happy, playful, can't wait for recess. But kids that age saying that they have no desire to live. That, my friends, is why Palestinian protesters are willing to gather at the borders and to stand their ground even while they're being shot by snipers. And yes, I said snipers. As the Trump delegation gathered in Jerusalem to dedicate the new American embassy, protesters gathered at the border of Gaza. And that day, 58 men, women, and children were shot dead. And between 1,300 and 2,000 were wounded. Now, why didn't they use tear gas if they were massing at the border? Well, because they were too far away from the border to shoot tear gas canisters. And you think, snipers, why didn't they use rubber bullets? Well, because they were too far away for rubber bullets to work. They were killed by snipers who were shooting from hundreds of yards away, shooting indiscriminately into large crowds of protesters. So, yeah, there are offenses on both sides. But it's gotten to be kind of like when people say that scientists don't agree on global climate change. 98% of scientists agree. The other 2% usually work for the coal and oil industry. Or they're stupid. (laughs) There's some of that. Yeah, it's like, yeah, well... One side's being honest and they're informed, and the other side is being dishonest and they're uninformed. So there are offenses on both sides, and Israel does have a right to defend their borders. But the offenses on the Israeli side of the equation make it look like over a century's time, they have moved from being the victims of Nazis to acting like Nazis themselves. And we need to be clear about this, because you're not going to hear this in commercial media. Our corporate media almost never tells the truth about Israeli offenses. If you ever want to understand the hatred that Islamic fundamentalists have for Americans, you can put at the top of the list the American support for the human rights abuses of Israel against Palestine. And that is a fact. We've just heard clips today, starting with Ezra Klein speaking with Peter Beinart about the unsustainable illiberalism of Israel and the need for more human rights-supporting Jews to speak out on the topic. 
The Real News talked with Paul Jay about how it's short-sighted for Jews to try to cozy up to the oppressors in the hope of avoiding oppression themselves. Democracy Now! spoke with two peace advocates about Israel's new law that defines the country as a Jewish nation-state. The Real News explained why Israel's actions have left them supporting and being supported by racist, white supremacists, and fascists. Democracy Now! talked with Noam Chomsky also about the Jewish nation-state law and Israel's predictable rightward political shift. The Real News discussed the three-way relationship between the U.S., Saudi Arabia, and Israel. And finally, we just heard a portion of one of Dr. Roger Ray's progressive faith sermons discussing how Israel, while perhaps a noble cause, is built on human rights abuses that cause grudges that will never die and stoke not only anti-Semitism, but anti-Americanism as well. Members will be getting a bonus episode with Amanda on the mic with me as we discuss the pervasive nature of private contractors in government and the Nordic theory of family care that helps people create healthy environments to raise children without financial dependency to abusive or neglectful partners getting in the way. To hear that and all of our bonus content, sign up as a full member on Patreon at the $6 level. But if that's too steep for you, consider getting the show ad-free for only two bucks a month. And remember that our weekly poll to help us choose what topics we're going to cover each week is free to everyone. You can simply follow the show on Patreon, no financials involved, and take part in that poll each weekend. Visit patreon.com slash bestofleft for all the details. Of course, you can find that link in the show notes on the device you're using to listen. And now, we'll hear from you. Hey, Jay. I like the candidate spotlight episode in that it helped me understand that if I was choosing between Warren and Harris, but as of what I know now, I would pick Elizabeth Warren. And I'm grateful for that information. Even after listening to that episode, I still like Kamala Harris as my senator in California. I think that she is representing progressivism in California, at least decently well in this current role. I wish she would make amends for the things she did that weren't progressive or were regressive and just bad regarding the criminal justice system in her past. But the problem I had with the episode is that now if if you have Harris who actually wins the primary, with that episode being so negative, not just spotlighting why Warren is better, but kind of really pointing out why Harris is bad. You now kind of poison the well. Now we're just holding our nose and voting for her because she's not Trump instead of being excited about it. So, I mean, obviously, I just wish that these conversations could be had on the left without it just being like more of an, an attack. And I don't know how that would even be possible. I'm just saying that was the only problem I had with the show is like, well, now if she wins, and I'm not saying she wins, but if she is the candidate, we have to rally behind her because she's going to be better than Trump despite her problems. And are we going to be less inclined to do that because this is the kind of analysis we've heard of her? And so that that was my concern. All right. Thanks, Jay. Keep up the good work. And sorry, you know, it wasn't raining when I went to make this voicemail message. And now it's pouring. So I don't even know that you can hear any of what I just said. Bye. Hey, Jay, this is Dev calling from Illinois. Just finished listening to your episode about raising taxes. And I was thinking about all the content about the Nordic countries. And I know that anytime that discussion comes up in my life, people always talk about the, diff- the one difference to consider 
being uh, the history of, of racism and colonialization and battle slavery that the United States has to deal with when being compared to the Nordic countries. And I am curious if you or any other listeners have thoughts about if there is a useful way to bring that up into conversations about raising taxes and increasing the social safety net, or if perhaps that is a red herring, um, how that all factors in. I know that it's really complicated, but I would love to hear anyone's input on how to keep those conversations in mind of each other and interacting with each other. Thank you so much. Have a good one. Take care. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to our production assistant, Joel McKean, and the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. First of all, uh, to Nick and the question of poisoning the well and, and putting us all in the position of having to hold our nose and vote for the ultimate general election candidates for the Democrats. I take the criticism seriously. I acknowledge it. I recognize that it is possible to maybe go too far in criticizing. I I think we all agree that it is important to criticize candidates in an effort to make them better, either to prevent them from being elected or if they are elected or going to be elected, making them better. Um, So I think we agree on that. In terms of poisoning the well, I see it a bit as an inevitability. There's an old saying, fall in love in the primaries, fall in line for the general. That is what's going to happen for everyone to some extent. Even if your candidate wins through the election, the, the primary election process, I guarantee you will learn things about your favorite candidate that you don't like. And to some degree, you will have to hold your nose and vote for them because there is no perfect candidate. We don't get to play a fantasy league with our candidates' opinions and positions to, to pick all the positions from all the candidates to make your, your perfect candidate. It doesn't work that way, obviously. So to some degree, the well is poisoned because people aren't perfect. So we're all going to end up holding our nose to some degree. That said, I take the criticism and and I will not go out of my way to poison the well any more than it is already going to be inevitably. Secondly, uh, Bev, dealing with racism as it pertains to higher taxation and government programs. Two answers to this. The first, universal programs, universal programs, universal programs. Social security is not criticized using racism to try to destroy it. You shouldn't need any more evidence than that to understand that means-tested, which means programs targeted at the poor, when the poor don't have the means themselves to support themselves or to buy enough food or to pay for their own housing, they get programs directed at the poor. Those are means-tested. Those are the programs that are targeted using either coded or overt racism 
and people start talking about the makers and the takers and the the safety net being turned into a hammock and the lazies who refuse to work and on and on and on. And everyone knows what all of that means. It all started with the welfare queens and and, and goes back even further than that. But you know, when we talk about universal programs dating back to the New Deal, racism has been embedded in these programs a lot through the years. But I think we have progressed enough to the point that racism really isn't overt anymore. People aren't going to come out and say, you know, we can't have universal uh, health care because then the blacks will have health care. Like, people just aren't going to say that. And I know this because they don't say it about Social Security. So, number one, universal programs. Number two, we need more transparency in our benefit programs. Our programs are designed primarily to function through the tax code. And so our tax code is enormously complicated. No one understands how it works. And people who receive benefits often don't know it. It's ridiculous. The polling on this is absurd. People are asked, do you receive government services? And for a lot of reasons, much because the programs are basically invisible. They're in the tax code. People think, uh, no, I, I don't take government benefits because I'm not one of those poor, lazy people. And so there's that social indoctrination, too, that only poor, lazy people take government benefits. But then when you ask the same group of people, okay, do you benefit from Social Security, Medicare, earned income, child uh, tax credit, child credits, those sorts of things, then the vast majority of people who had said, no, I don't accept government benefits actually do. And most benefit from more than one program. So the, the fact that our programs are administered invisibly because they were designed by economists and government technocrats who thought it would be more efficient to just run it through the tax code. They had no idea the impact that would have on how people actually interact with these programs. Sure, people are getting the benefits. They, they might literally be experiencing the benefits in their lives. But if they don't know that, then they're not going to support the programs that they themselves need or, or that they might support if they knew it was a government program. So uh, we need more transparency. We, we need it to be more obvious that our programs are helping people. We need to stop running them through the tax code and, and making them invisible in the jumble of people's yearly taxes. I'm still reading the Nordic theory of everything, and they explain in the book that in Nordic countries, the benefits are really explicit. You know, you see them really clearly. They're not hidden in the tax code like, oh, your taxes went down, but you're not really sure why. Is it because I earned less? Is it because the taxes changed? Or is it because a government program is targeting me for those benefits? You don't know. But in her case, uh, the author came from Finland, and she explains, no, 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 all the policies are really clear. When you get a benefit, you know you get that benefit. So there are two things. I don't think that Americans are dumber than people in Scandinavia, nor do I think that people in Scandinavia are more altruistic than Americans. It's just that our systems have guided our thinking in such ways that Americans receive benefits but don't know it. And Scandinavians know that they get these benefits and therefore support them. So it's not that they are just like, 
so happy and helpful that they want to help everyone. Like, it's a little bit of selfish altruism for themselves. They want those benefits for themselves as well. And Americans, if we knew what we were getting for our tax dollars, we'd be much more willing to pay those tax dollars. So between universal programs and more transparency in how they're administered, I think that would go basically all the way to solving the racism problem. And now finally, about that candidate episode, as I've said, I've gotten a range of responses, everything from I love it, keep them coming, to uh, I liked it, but I'd maybe tweak it, to I'm neutral on it, but what happened, to uh, I hated it, don't ever do that again. Well, no matter where you came down on it, or especially if you were mad about it, I can pretty much guarantee you still got nothing on this guy for how mad I made him with my previous episode on Israel. While Jews are under attack by your friend Ilhan Omar, uh, you put out a smear against Jews and Israel with an entire podcast episode dedicated to destroying the world's only Jewish state, period. I've been listening to you for years, and I've never seen you do a podcast episode about destroying Saudi Arabia. Uh, you don't seem to have any issue with their human rights problems. You don't have any issue with Iran's human rights problems. You don't do any episodes on China. Uh, you know, it's only the Jewish state. It's only the Jews. It's only the Jews that you have a problem with. So fuck you and fuck your show. You'll never get another dime from me. So first of all, I, I have no idea if you really listen to the show. I feel like a lot of his concerns are actually addressed in the episode itself. My my sense is he didn't listen to it or he didn't listen to it all the way through. But let's just go through these one at a time. First of all, he uh, you know accuses the episode of being dedicated to destroying the world's only Jewish state. Of course, I, I have no interest in destroying the country. I have an interest in upholding universal human rights and upholding international law. So the show was dedicated to understanding a strategy, the purpose of which is to create the political pressure that could force Israel to embrace human rights and international law, neither of which should be in any way controversial to this audience. Secondly, he says, we've never done a show on Saudi Arabia and we clearly don't care about their human rights records. I don't know. He says he's a long-time listener. Maybe he missed the whole episode that goes into the long and deep history between the United States and Saudi Arabia uh, in the context of the Jamal Khashoggi murder. You know, if you want to criticize us for not doing enough episodes on Saudi Arabia, look, I, I would take that. As I say often, you know, this shows a reflection of what gets talked about in the news. So Jamal Khashoggi was a big enough story that it, it gave us an opportunity to do probably a long overdue episode on Saudi Arabia, but I don't have control about, you know, every aspect of, of what topics can be covered because, you know, I'm sort of beholden to what people are talking about. Um, I, I do think that Saudi Arabia is an undercovered topic, and I never hear anyone in the U.S. say really good things about Saudi Arabia, only the politicians. Politicians will say that fine things about them. Um, people in America, you know, we're kind of like, um, we probably don't like those guys, right? But we don't say nearly enough critical directed at the United States for our support of, the, of Saudi Arabia. I agree with that. But anyway, I did cover it, so I guess technically he would be uh, wrong about that. And and then I think he goes a little bit farther off the rails here when he says that, you know, we don't cover issues about Iran and China. And this is where we get into whataboutism, which was covered in the show, that this criticism was actually already answered in the show itself, which makes me think he didn't listen to it. But 
whataboutism, in my opinion, is one of the lowest forms of debate. And the answer, which was in that show, is that the U.S. has a special relationship with Israel, just like we have a special relationship with other countries, the U.K. and others. When a country who we have a lot of influence over is doing something bad, of course we will give more weight, more credence to that dynamic. We will put more focus on criticizing what's happening with a country we have a close relationship with than a country we don't have a close relationship with because we have the ability to alter that situation. We don't have very much power at all to alter what's happening in Iran or in China. So we could spit into the wind talking about their human rights abuses, and that would be fine. I'd have no problem doing it, but I wouldn't have any hope that it would do any good. Whereas focusing on Israel, we could actually change that dynamic. The United States has so much influence over Israel, as Israel has so much influence over us, we could actually change the situation. It is a, a terrible, terrible situation uh, as it stands. And so as a United States citizen, I think it is our duty to be critical of that situation specifically because we have the power to change it. Um, and, and then finally, you know, it's only the Jews. I only have a problem with the Jews. Uh, so great. Like the implication of anti-Semitism is tiresome at this point. Uh, if the government of Israel were a progressive human rights loving beacon of freedom, then criticism against it could much more rationally be suspected of stemming from anti-Semitism. But that is clearly not the case. Anyone who continues to think so has their head in the sand. They have a huge blind spot when it comes to Israel. You know, they, they love so much the mission of Israel, what it's supposed to do, that, that they sort of block out everything else. Or maybe they think that that purpose, creating a safe space for Jews, is so important that human rights abuses are a worthwhile price to pay to maintain that safe haven for Jews. And if that's what a person thinks, I think that's fine, but they should be willing to come out and say it. That might be where our fundamental disagreement is, and I would be happy to have that debate, but throwing tantrums and flinging accusations of anti-Semitism when confronted with legitimate criticism is old and tired. The tide is turning. Those of us who care about universal human rights are waiting to have a real debate on the issues. And as was demonstrated in this new episode, if your instinct is to yell anti-Semitism at every opportunity rather than dealing with the issues, you're going to find yourself with an ever-shrinking pool of allies made up, ironically, of literal fucking fascists. As always, I welcome your comments. Keep them coming in at 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestoftheleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music you used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com.
www.thinkandgrowthpodcast.com. 